You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 4th of December 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Live from London, this is The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A very warm welcome to today's programme. Coming up, more speeches and more scandal will be in Dubai as COP28 continues. Also coming up... It is not time for a debate to dissolve public opinion. It is not time for a debate to divide Venezuelans. It is time for a debate to unite the national soul into a whole. Is Venezuela about to make a land grab of its neighbour's territory? The country holds a referendum on the creation of a new state, which isn't in Venezuela. And we'll look at Monday's papers and hear about the return of a superstar restaurateur in Ljubljana. That's all ahead on The Globalist, live from London. So, a look at what else is happening in today's news. Israel says its ground forces are now pushing into southern Gaza. One observer has been quoted as saying that the humanitarian situation in the south of the Gaza Strip is now beyond catastrophic. Three commercial ships have been attacked in the Red Sea and the Hong Kong pro-democracy activist Agnes Chow says she is jumping bail and will not be returning home from her studies in Canada. Stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on these stories. But first, discussions at the UN Climate Change Summit COP28 in Dubai have suggested that bold moves are to be expected from this year's gathering. There's already been the announcement of a substantial fund to support these people. But once again, there has been trouble from the host. The president of the Dubai Climate Change Summit, Sultan Al-Jaber, has claimed that there was no science to suggest phasing out fossil fuels will help limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Well, I'm joined on the line by uh, Andrew Friedman, a senior climate reporter with Axios, who's at COP in Dubai at the moment. Very good morning to you, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Um, good. So just explain to us, before we, we sort of unpick what uh, Sultan al-Jaber had to say, um, just tell us about the positive developments over the weekend, because to all intents and purposes, there is a, a, a good sense of dynamism in Dubai. Yeah, there really is. I, I you know, I think there's two sides of this. One is that countries came together to, uh, as well as private companies and philanthropies, to offer up millions and millions of dollars onto the table towards various um, needs on climate, towards reducing methane emissions, methane emissions, toward financing projects in developing countries, and the the fund that you mentioned, which is the loss and damage fund that has been argued over for three decades and would direct money from industrialized countries to the developing world uh, to help them withstand the impacts of climate change. Any country can contribute under the architecture that it is now. And really what people are looking for at this point is for countries to come up with more ambitious pledges. Because right now, um, it's nowhere near what is needed for even a single country to withstand the impacts that they're seeing right now. And when you mean pledges, do we actually mean something that will be written down, Some a commitment as strong as what happened in Paris, I think many people are asking for? 
You know, I I think a pledge is much less significant. I think a pledge is really, you know, the U.S. or other countries saying we're going to deliver um, X billion dollars into this fund. Um, and then they go and would have to ask Congress for that money, for example. Um, it's not really credible that the U.S. would give a very large pledge because that we cannot um, get that through a Republican House. Um, but other countries have stepped up with uh, larger pledges. Um, and, and we'll see where this goes in the future. This is going to be an evolving thing in future COPs. I do think that the UAE COP presidency, so the folks that are in charge of this, really do want an ambitious outcome, whether you call it the Dubai Agreement, like the Paris Agreement, or, or, or some iteration of it, they do want a package that is looked back on by history as a turning point. It's there a sense that the right people are there. And there was an article in the Financial Times over the weekend talking about the fact that out of the 80,000 attendees at COP28, the majority of them will be bankers, consultants and lobbyists who will be able to rub up against uh, government delegations shaping climate policy and large oil and gas executives. You know, I think, and maybe this is just me, but I think you have two things going on. You have the actual negotiations, which are actually the smaller part this year. Um, and they are uh, following the course that traditional ne negotiations over two weeks do, where the first week is a lot of pizzazz when the foreign leaders are there. Um, and the second week is usually much uh, harder when they're starting to argue over specific individual words in an agreement. And then there's the outside. It's it's what I would call the Davosification of the climate talks. Um, you know, I'm guilty of this too, because I'm, I'm taking part in Axios House Dubai events, um, where we're bringing some business leaders and pol political leaders together to talk about things. Um, but there's multiple publications that have summits here there's multiple other uh, groups that are. You have multiple CEOs of oil and gas companies which are here, um, which is not normal for a cop. Um, and really, I'm wondering if the center of gravity in some ways is shifting from the actual climate summit talks going on behind closed doors and in some cases, um, webcast and reporters are allowed in the room. Um, and these outside those walls uh, gatherings, because we know what needs to happen. We know that it's going to take a lot of money to get it to happen. So the involvement of private companies overall, you could argue over what role fossil fuel companies have to do in this. But the role of private companies and financiers in total is that they really need to step up and figure out ways to help governments provide the finances that are necessary in order to make the energy transition to more uh, renewable forms of energy um, and do that very, very quickly. So if you do have the, the, the major um, leaders of industry at the summit, there is a sense that something practically can be done because the private sector can 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 respond as as nimbly as it can. Nonetheless, when you have the president 
of COP28, Sultan al-Jaber, um, saying that there is no science to suggest phasing out fossil fuels will help limit global warming to, to 1.5 degrees Celsius. You have a furious reaction, but it does make the heart sink a little, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It, it makes you think that he's fundamentally misjudged the situation. I, I think having listened to that conversation, which occurred in late November with um, the former Irish president, uh, Mary Robinson, uh, you know, you just wonder what he was thinking at that time. I, I, I think that their position on this has has always been clear which is that they want to keep the 1.5 degrees C warming target alive. And they know that a phase out of fossil fuels is inevitable. Um, when, I've, when I've interviewed him, this is how he's characterized it. However, he doesn't believe that you can just flick a switch, shut off oil and gas, and that the world will be um, ready. Uh, you know, their view is that you have to build up the newer energy economy while you are phasing down the the existing one. Um, And it was notable that the U.S. came to his defense today with uh, Secretary uh, Kerry essentially saying that's not where the debate is. The debate isn't about where uh, fossil fuel phase downs would be necessary for 1.5. The debate is whether he's in agreement on the need to reduce emissions and to achieve 1.5 degrees. So there's all of this really interesting um, diplomatic dances going on. But I would say the COP presidency has been damaged by two, uh, I don't know if you'd call it leaks exactly, but in two episodes already with uh, the revelation that they may have been seeking oil and gas deals while meeting with countries. Uh, to talk about climate change. And now this, which just on its face, the quote makes uh, a mockery of the UN Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change and other reports, which do say exactly that, that you have to phase out fossil fuel emissions, possibly through uh, CCS and other technologies that don't work at scale right now, but maybe one day will, to to trap emissions. and and that that's what is needed in order to have even a half decent chance of meeting 1.5 degrees c and one note on that is the data for november's climate is starting to come out and we now know that november alone was 1.6 degrees c above the pre-industrial level so we are lapping up against that limit already on monthly timescales the, the goal in Paris refers to long-term timescales on the order of multiple decades. So we're not there yet. But the fact that we're lapping up against it already it is a very bad sign. Andrew Friedman in Dubai, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. 
That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It's uh, 7.12am here in London. Let's continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Yasmin Abdel-Majid, a Sudanese-Australian broadcaster and author. A very good morning to you, Yasmin. Good morning, Emma. Great to have you back in the studio. Right, we've just heard the latest from what's happening in Gaza um, and also the fact that the United States is urging Israel not to do to the south of Gaza what it has apparently done to the north. This is having repercussions back in the United States, isn't it? This 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 conflict is rippling very, very far. Definitely. And the Al Jazeera is reporting that US Muslims are actually pledging to ditch Biden in 2024 over his stance um, on the on the Israel-Gaza war. So what we're seeing, and, and this is a more formalised version of the kind of noises that have been um, since uh, since October 7 and, and, and since Biden's full-throated support of Israel and refusal to... Ask or push for a, a ceasefire. Um, many Muslims um, and sort of Arab American uh, blocks or organizing um, communities have been thinking about and talking about their disappointment in the Democrats and in Biden in particular. And so several Muslim leaders in lead pivotal states have pledged to rally their communities against President Biden's uh, bid for re-election in 2024. And so there's it's sort of the hashtag Abandon Biden campaign. It began in Minnesota um, and has now spread to uh, Michigan, Arizona, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Florida. And the, the key issue here for Biden is that some of these states are key swing or key states in the Electoral College, um, which we are aware is is very important because it's not only about the popular vote for the Democrats, but it is about the Electoral College. And and in one state in particular, um, Biden only won by like 2.3% and the the Arab American bloc is about 5% of the vote. So this is maybe a key concern going into 2024. Is it now too late for Biden? Because as as we've been discussing, the the US has desperately tried to temper its... Um, view of the of the conflict at the beginning, it was absolutely unequivocal support for Israel, and now seeing what is happening, mm. the United States is desperately trying to row back on it. But is there a suggestion now that it actually doesn't matter what both Biden and indeed what Anthony Blinken try and say? They've lost them. They've lost the Muslim voters. Yeah, I think this is really interesting, and, and opinions are divided on this. There is within the the Democratic camp. Um, I. You know, I've spoken to folks who have said, look, the understanding is that by the time we get to November 2024, you know, we will, this won't be the front page news, hopefully. And so this won't be the issue that people are, are voting on. But I do think there are, there are definitely small organizing groups that are really committed to um, voting, pushing against Biden. And so I th- I'm not sure, I think it's slightly too far or slightly too early to to be able to get a real sense of whether or not this will cause an issue in, in the longer term for Biden. However, I do think that there is a sense that the Democrats are taking the Muslim vote for granted. And so if they're not, if, if there isn't a more kind of obvious um, put, like a... a 
not not necessarily because um, because what we're seeing at the moment is this sort of tempering, yes, but it isn't a an apology. It is in a sense that okay, we've done something wrong here. It's it's sort of just a, a slight rolling back. So I, I feel like Muslim voters and Arab voters want to see that their concerns will be addressed um, in in a, in a manner in a manner that. Um, reflects their importance in the in the American public. And is there a sense that if not the Democrats, the Republicans could be the 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 attractive party to go for? Because you know evidence and anecdotes suggest that they're they're even more pro Israel. But 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 is there also the possibility that the traditional structure of Democrats and Republicans is something which no longer appeals to Muslim voters? Definitely. I mean, some of the um, Muslim leaders in question have said, look, we don't believe it's just two options that we're considering. We believe that there are many options. I don't. I think it's very unlikely that the, the Muslim bloc will kind of be pro-Trump next election, but what you might see is them supporting Cornel West, who's been, been very pro-Palestine. They might be looking at other independent candidates who are more green and so on. So I think there is definitely a sense of, okay, what are our alternate options? What are ways that we can kind of organise and campaign um, that, that don't just focus on two options that we don't feel represented by either way? Okay, let's move on to another story about um, the UN Security Council um, ending its UNITAM's mission in Sudan. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what UNITAM's purpose is and why it's not worked. So UNITAM's the United Nations Integrated Transition Assistant Mission in Sudan, which is a mouthful, um, was created during the transition uh, post-revolution in 2018-19 to sort of to help Sudan kind of get back on its feet. Now, the former head of UNITAM's Volker Pertz was a... um, I wouldn't say controversial figure. I think that would be too far. However, he was... There was quite a lot of tensions between him um, and the... Uh, the sort of the generals or the belligerents um, that was at the, that are responsible ultimately for the war that's going on in Sudan, and so he resigned earlier this year, citing his inability to to be effective. I mean, the the army, the Sudanese armed forces had declared him persona non grata, so it had. I mean, that was part of it, but I think within the the Sudanese um, community and within you know diplomatic circles, there was this sense that he didn't quite have an understanding, a grappling with what was actually happening in Sudan and how to be effective. So it was from from both ends. I think it was an unfortunate situation. Um, people felt like the the cultural fit didn't quite work when sort of coming in and trying to to help the transition to a civilian government in Sudan. So um, it was instructed. Unitams was instructed by the Security Council to begin the cessations of its operations today. And this is, it's more a symbolic thing than it is a practical thing. You know, Volker Perth has has resigned. Um, The Sudanese armed forces themselves were the ones who asked for Unitimes to be disbanded. And so, you know, the... the, um, the British and various other diplomatic uh, groups have said, "Look, we wouldn't have been, we wouldn't have chosen to wind down this mission because now there is no formal mission." And yes, there is um, a new special envoy um, by uh, elected or appointed, sorry, by Antonio Guterres. But it does feel, I think, that again, where the international community is reducing its presence on the ground in Sudan. Well, indeed, I mean, what you just described there seems a sort of chair you know, musical chairs going on with people coming, people going. But there's this also secondary and very, well, primary narrative, which is Sudan is at war. Exactly. And it's still at war. And and the war crimes continue. I mean, 
Reuters just last week put out a special report about how the um, the rapid support forces, the militia, is using, you know, sexual violence, gender based violence, and rape as, in in a really like in the the most horrific way possible, and also along ethnic lines um, in the West in Sudan, and and so and we're. I mean, Sudan has the most number of displaced people in the world at the moment. The the death toll is in the tens of thousands. Um, and and it doesn't feel like at the moment, I mean, there's lots going on around the world, but from a diplomatic point of view, it doesn't seem like there's energy towards um, resolution. It actually feels like people are, you know, the international community is stepping further away, partly also because the Sudanese armed forces is saying, Please don't get involved. We don't want you here. Why don't you know? Just leave us to our own devices. Uh, finally, quickly, um, if you're in a farm in Italy uh, and look in the I don't know back cupboard, back garden, who knows? You might have a, an old master there. That's right. Um, so don't we all right. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if if the paintings that that are in in my shed would be considered masterpieces, but um, on I a, don't even have a shed. <laughs> that's true. I'm the imaginary shed, the imaginary shed, Emma. Um, so a Botticelli uh, Madonna and Child was found on a farm after half a century of being lost. The authorities, quote unquote, lost track of its whereabouts, um, and it was recovered from a family living in southern Italy who had acted, and I love this phrase from this piece in the Times, um, acted as custodians of the work after its removal from a church near Naples where it was damaged by an earthquake in 1982. And, you know, there are many pieces of work I would like to act as a custodian of, um, maybe just, you know, in in my not-quite-shed. It is astonishing. <laughs> Absolutely astonishing. In, in the shed. Yasmin Abdelmajid, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. Lord Peter Hayne is a former UK cabinet minister and anti-apartheid campaigner who grew up in South Africa. During his political career, which has spanned three decades, Lord Hayne served in the cabinets of former British Prime Ministers Tony Blair and Gordon Brown and as chair of the UN Security Council. But he's also written numerous gripping thrillers and his most recent novel, The Elephant Conspiracy, puts a spotlight on elephant poaching in South Africa and tells a tale of corruption, collusion and courage. Lord Hayne sat down with Monocle's Andrew Muller to talk about the themes in his book and Andrew began by asking whether the elephant acts as a metaphor in the story. Well, it's a thriller Mm. about the terrible poaching, almost extinction of elephants, like the first thriller I wrote about rhinos is a similar theme. And the next one due out next year is about lions who are even more endangered than rhinos. But all three of these majestic animals are threatened by poaching uh, to the point of extinction, but it's driven, and that's what really got me involved, driven by international criminal syndicates, in turn protected by corrupt politicians. And my background in the anti-apartheid struggle, my parents were mm-hmm. born there and brought, and I was brought up there as a child until we had to come into exile when I was 16. And involvement in the anti-apartheid struggle myself. And then to find Nelson Mandela's vision of a new South African democracy, exemplified by his assumption to the presidency in 1994, being betrayed by his very own party members as they looted the country under former President Zuma. Bringing those two things together of the perversion of values through political corruption on the one hand and the terrible poaching 
to the point of extinction that goes on all the time every day in Africa and elsewhere. And understanding that the two are interlinked is the core of my interest. So is it arguable then that these three fabulous creatures, the lion, the rhinoceros and the elephant, do kind of feature as a a metaphor for the the, the self-destructive outcomes of corruption? Because these are three creatures which are, well, exemplary treasures of South Africa and that they are being wiped out by their alleged, or at least under the watch of their alleged custodians. Yes, in a way. But, you know, for example, elephants are being killed at the rate of 100 a day. They were initially slaughtered by colonial huntsmen from Britain and Europe in the 19th century. Starting at the beginning, there were about 2 million elephants roaming across the entire African continent. Now there are only tens of thousands, a fraction of what they were. And that's, in a way also to do with population growth, but it is at the sharp end that you get this visceral, abhorrent poaching where poor black poachers, often local Mm. unemployed people, are at the bottom of a chain that goes all the way internationally to East Asia in the main, where ivory in the case of elephants or rhino horns, which are similar sort of fabric uh, material to our fingernails, are ground down in the case of rhinos to all sorts of fetishes for the rich elite in China and Vietnam and and similar countries and some in in the West as well, but mainly them. And in the case of of elephants, long-standing human desire for ivory trinkets. And this is about personal greed of us, that's to say humankind. Well, that's what underpins corruption in all its forms, though, right? I mean, corruption is driven by greed. And I've tried to understand why post-colonial countries, not just in Africa and, and certainly in South Africa, where it's gone badly wrong, but Latin America, everywhere in the world, post-colonial countries, why they seem inevitably when the the liberation movement typically wins its mm. freedom, then its former noble warriors in the, in the cause of the freedom struggles start, not all of them, uh, certainly not Mandela, not his leadership of his generation who spent the best years of their life on, on Robben Island with him, and not them, but too many others, when they get into power, having had nothing, suddenly see the opportunities to enrich themselves. And it's easy to be morally sanctimonious about that without understanding the consequences, but it is lethal for countries. And in South Africa's case, it's been terrible, the impact Mm. on the economy and the society. But it's also lethal for, in the case of poaching, that these corrupt politicians protect and support and enrich themselves from uh, for these precious wild animals. Where have you ever got got to yourself on the reasons for that? Uh, You're quite right. It is a recurrent phenomenon, the descent into self-serving corruption by by former revolutionaries. Why do you think their self-awareness deserts them as soon as they get into office? Did none of them spend any of their time in prison or exile reading Animal Farm? Well, they'll have to answer that for themselves, but I don't think we should be too high and mighty about it. I mean, in Britain, where we're doing this interview, during the COVID crisis, it's now been revealed Mm. that there's been huge corruption 
including by friends of ministers, uh, getting contracts for personal protection equipment which were never delivered or of massively inferior quality, so couldn't be used. So there's corruption in every country. But in the case of former liberation movements, I just am dismayed by what's happened in South Africa because the, the victims are their own children and their grandchildren mm. and their communities. The pressures on them when they get into these positions, I remember one African, not South African, one African deputy foreign minister explaining to me in another African country when I was Britain's African minister in the period 1999 to 2001, he was saying, you know, when he got into office, and he was saying, look, I'm not corrupt. But immediately, all my relatives, my local village, want something, mm -hmm. want me to do, help them to get jobs, to get favours, to get money, uh, as the case may be, because they're so desperate for it. So there is that rationale for it. But nothing can justify, in South Africa's case, and it's typical, a fifth of the country's GDP, of its natural wealth, of its wealth at the time, was stolen and the consequent economic decline by former President Zuma and his business cronies, the Gupta brothers. And so in the rhino conspiracy, I have a notional character, though the, they're all, this is a work of fiction. So th these are all, um, none of them are, are, uh, are real people, but, you know, there's a recognizable uh, read across for those who can discern it. There's a security chief to the president who is m masterminding this corruption. And ultimately, at the end of the Rhino conspiracy, he doesn't do well, should I put it that way, without betraying, <laughs> betraying the plot to the reader. The books obviously are novels. They are fiction, except to the extent, as you've demonstrated, that they're not really. But what was it about the idea of fiction that appealed to you? Did you think this is a way I can communicate a, a somewhat didactic message? Or were you just enjoying being a storyteller and the, the message was the story you wanted to tell? A bit of both, to be frank, Andrew. I, in my downtime, which is too little, <laughs> uh, certainly was when I was a cabinet minister and for most of my life where I seem to have ended up working far too hard, I read thrillers because in my daily life I read too many official documents and, <laughs> and government documents and, and non-fiction to want relief from it. And so I wanted to try it myself. And yes, you do. It's very difficult. I mean, I've written, what's it now, 27, next year, 28 books. But most of them, all overwhelmingly, they are nonfiction. They're about mm. either South African politics or British politics or those kind of themes. And, you know, you come back to, and it's true for the drugs trade. It's true for human trafficking in the, in the, in the context of the prostitution that usually lies at the end of it. You're talking about satisfying consumer, individual human beings' wanton greed. And that's, I'm afraid, at the base of the extinctions uh, that, that elephants, rhinos and now lions face. That was a British politician and author, Lord Peter Hayne, who's talking to Andrew Muller. And Lord Hayne's book, The Elephant Conspiracy, is out now. The time here in London is 7.31. You with The Globalist with me, Emma Nelson. A look now at today's other headlines. 
Israel says its ground forces are pushing into southern Gaza. The military claims its targets are Hamas command centres and weapons stores. The ceasefire between Israel and Hamas fell apart on Friday. One observer has been quoted as saying the humanitarian situation in the south of the Gaza Strip is now beyond catastrophic. Three commercial ships have been attacked in the Red Sea. The US military says one of its warships answered distress calls after missiles and drones were launched from parts of Yemen controlled by the Houthi rebel movement. The US military says one of its warships engaged and shot down several drones. And a Hong Kong pro-democracy activist says she is jumping bail and will not be returning home from her studies in Canada. Agnes Chow was jailed in 2020 for taking part in anti-government protests. She was released in 2022 and recently travelled to study in Toronto. Hong Kong police are reported as saying they strongly condemn her actions. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, voters in Venezuela have endorsed government plans to create a new state in the region of Esquibo. A referendum this weekend endorsed the idea with, according to the country's electoral authority, more than 95% approval. But there is a very simple problem. The patch of land in question in the Esquibo territory is not in Venezuela. It's recognised by the international community as being part of neighbouring Guyana, a sparsely populated country with some 800,000 inhabitants. So is this the start of a land grab? Well, joining me here to explain everything is uh, Dr Christopher Sabatini, a senior fellow for Latin America at Chatham House. Good morning, Chris. Good, Good to morning, see you. Thank you. Um, this is one of those stories that you just think, is this actually happening? That in 2023, there is a suggestion that a, a potential land grab could be happening. Before we get to that problem, just, just explain the, the, the background to this referendum? Sure. During colonial times, um, that part of Guyana was actually part of, of uh, Venezuela under the Spanish colony. Uh, but uh, in 1899, uh, with British, it was then Guyana was then a Brit- British colony. Um, they negotiated uh, this this deal in which uh, the Essequibo region was ceded to British Guyana, then British Guyana, um, and that's really been you know it's it's been a, a sore spot for the Venezuelans for a long time. They claim that the 1899 arbitral agreement was corrupt. Uh, and they also claim that th- th- that is their land. And so if you go into any classroom or any embassy in Venezuela, for example, you'll see this map of Venezuela. It doesn't look like the map that we see. It's the map that includes the Essequibo region. So they've always grown up with this thought that this was part of their country. Uh, and the Essequibo region is basically two-thirds of Guyana. So it's a significant chunk of a very small, sparsely populated country. But what happened was in 2015, to add sort of to this uh, tension, was massive amounts of oil were discovered off the coast of Essequibo and inside Essequibo, but primarily off the coast. some speculate about 11 billion recoverable barrels of oil are in that region. Of course, you know when, when you're Venezuela and you're a Venezuelan autocrat like Nicolas Maduro and you only have about 20% approval rating and you've got 80% poverty, you're looking at those barrels of oil, you're looking at a way of stoking nationalist um, um, fervor in your favor, uh, and so therefore you have this referendum that they had yesterday. And it's a 95% approval, so there is a suggestion that this is what the people really want um, Maduro to, to, to to push ahead with. I mean, can Venezuela actually do this? 
Well, as of Friday, the International Court of Justice said that uh, they had to respect, Venezuela had to respect the ter- territorial integrity of Guyana. They said they could go ahead or didn't weigh in on the, the referendum, which the, the Guyanese government wanted them to. Because, of course, this is ramping up. They, they put this before the people and you say 95% of the people in low voter turnout did, uh, did approve it. Um, yet he, they can't. But there is a lot of concern. Uh, a, Brazil, a delegation from the Brazilian foreign ministry was there, uh, very worried about uh, what Venezuela was planning. And as we know with wars, uh, you know, sometimes you know, bellicose rhetoric and actions can sort of tip towards war even when they're not intended to. And Nicolas Maduro has a tough year coming ahead. There are presidential elections scheduled in 2024. If those elections are free and fair, he will clearly lose. So it, it's still a, a hot potato right now. And has anybody asked A, the people of Guyana, who who at the moment currently lay claim to, to the state of, to the, to the region of Essequibo. And indeed, has anybody asked the population of Essequibo either whose, whose nation they wish to belong to? Uh, n- not formally, but, you know, sort of man in the street surveys and interviews that I've seen, they, they're Guyanese. Uh, they think they're Guyanese. It's a very sparsely populated region, about the size of Greece, actually. Uh, but yes, they, they feel they're Guyanese. One word you mentioned a moment ago was war which was something that perhaps is a rather unexpected prospect at the moment when when there are so many others happening elsewhere in the world. One dare not imagine that this could come to something as serious as that. But what are your thoughts on what happens next? Uh, well, first of all, I think a war is probably unlikely, but it's not improbable. Uh, as I say, it's, it's you know, this rhetoric... The you know we think now, perhaps an analogous situation is in 1982 when uh, the then military junta of Argentina invaded the Falklands uh, because precisely they were the government was unpopular and needed to rally uh, nationalist fervor within the country. Um, we'll have to see what happens. I mean, what was curious also in this referendum that was held yesterday, one of the questions was a rejection of the International Court of Justice's uh, jurisdiction in this, which is odd because Venezuela had actually appealed to the International Court of Justice. Well, Guyana had, but. Venezuela Venezuela was was participating in that uh, arbitration, um, so we'll have to see what happens. It's it's you know it's it's out there now. I don't know how he plans to respond. I don't know what his first step, next step is. But I think largely this was intended for domestic consumption. And very briefly, we have the neighbours Brazil increasing their military presence on on their northern border at, in response to this. I mean that suggests that this is being watched with alarm by neighbouring countries. It is, and as I say, the foreign ministry sent a delegation to try to talk to the Venezuelan government. They came. Back and they were sufficiently scared that they ramped up their military presence on the border. Um, Venezuela is also building uh, an airstrip uh, close to the border with Guyana. So, um, you know, that's also a worrying sign that there's something is, is afoot. Christopher Sabatini from Chatham House, thank you so much for joining us on Monocle Radio. You're listening to The Globalist. Now, regional elections were held this weekend in five states in India, and the results suggest there is still plenty of support yet for the ruling BJP party of the Prime Minister Narendra Modi. The BJP has a commanding lead in the state of Madhya Pradesh, Rajasthan and Chhattisgarh. The Congress is comfortably ahead in the southern state of Telangana, the Congress being the opposition. Now, I'm joined now for the latest from Bengaluru by the journalist Maya Sharma. A very good morning to you, Maya. Good morning. Good uh, morning to you too. A very good morning. Uh, just explain the context of these of these five states going to the polls. Well, of course, the general election, the All India election, is just a few months away, four or five months away. So everyone, of course, is looking at these state regional elections as a kind of way as the way the wind is blowing, and the wind certainly does seem to be blowing the way of the ruling BJP. If you're going by these results of these five states, 
One state, of course, being counted only today, that's the state of Mizoram, which had a Christian, which has a Christian majority and didn't want counting done on a Sunday. But in the other four states, three of them have gone firmly, squarely to the BJP. So that is really news which the BJP will take as very encouraging. The Congress has done well. It has won a state where it wasn't ruling, Telangana and the south of India. But the northern parts of India, the three states in the north, the Hindi heartland, as we call it here, have gone very, very much the BJP way. And with the numbers in those states, the numbers who will be sending MPs to the parliament next year, the BJP has every reason to be in a celebratory mood about the results of these regional elections. Uh, suggestions before the polls were that the Indian National Congress, the opposition, could have done very well. So has something gone wrong here for the for the opposition? Well, yes, exactly. In the state of Chhattisgarh, it was expected the Congress would win. And certainly a closer fight was expected in Madhya Pradesh and Rajasthan. What people are perhaps suggesting is that the Congress may have been a little bit overconfident. It was doing well in the run-up to the election. But maybe in the last few days, they slacked off a bit and didn't quite push it through. That is one possibility. But the other thing is in the Hindi heartland, the northern part of the country, the Modi factor, the appeal of Prime Minister Modi is very, very strong. And it does seem to be a large part here. In some of the states, it was projected as Modi against the incumbent chief minister. So that does seem to have worked for the BJP. There were also some promises made, like 12,000 rupees a year to women in Chhattisgarh, you know, help for the tribal communities of these states, which do seem to have worked in the favor of the BJP. So the Congress, yes, it really has to reassess what's going on. It is the leader in the alliance of opposition parties known as the India Alliance. So the Congress will really have to take stock and see what it can do and pull itself and its partners together ahead of the general elections. Uh, does this therefore suggest that a, a, a victory for Narendra Modi and his, and his party in 2024 is somewhat of a foregone conclusion now? Well, nothing is ever certain, especially not in the volatile world of Indian politics. But with this kind of support being demonstrated in the northern part of the country, where the numbers come from, the number of MPs from the northern states vastly outnumbers other states. For example, the state where the Congress did win this time round was in Telangana, in South India. South India has not been quite as welcoming to the BJP as the rest of the country. The BJP does not have a presence except in one state, Karnataka, and it even lost Karnataka earlier this year. But the South does not have the numbers of the northern states. So it does look good for the BJP, but it's a brave person who will make a definite prediction when it comes to Indian politics. Uh, finally, Maya, let's move to a story that's been moving for the last week or so about um, US authorities saying that they have derailed a conspiracy um, to assassinate an American-Canadian dual citizen um, and pointing the finger at Delhi. I mean, this is the latest in a series of claims made by both Canada and the US, isn't it? Yes, this is a very, very serious allegation indeed. The way it is being treated by India is a little bit different, of course. India absolutely ridiculed the Canadian allegation. It sent out Canadian diplomats and was very, very cross with Canada. With the United States, it's treading a little bit more carefully. And of course, there is a difference. With Canada, it remained allegations that that one of the Sikh separatists was killed with the involvement of the Indian government, that is, remains an allegation. Whereas in the US, it's, it's gone further in the legal system. It's become an actual charge sheet as well. And India has said it's setting up a high-level inquiry to look into what the allegations are, implying, of course, that the higher levels of the Indian government didn't have anything to do with it. The United States is also treading very carefully. They're very 
focused on this relationship with India, viewing India as a possible counterpoint to China, the power of the rising power of China. India is a focal point for the United States right now. So even the US is being very, very cautious in what it is saying. It is, of course, saying it's a very, very serious subject. Uh, it, President Biden is supposed to have spoken to Prime Minister Modi about it at the G20 summit in New Delhi. And officials have been saying that they're happy that India is investigating, that they're looking at the issue seriously, but they're treating it as if maybe the plot, if it if it does turn out to be true, did not go very high up in the Indian government. So both countries being very cautious, not quite the level of hostilities that was seen between India and Canada. Maya Sharma on the line from Bengaluru. Thank you so much for joining us on The Globalist. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Time now for a roundup of Asia Pacific News. Monocle's Asia editor James Chambers joins me on the line from Bangkok. A very good morning to you, James. Morning, Emma. Um, right, tell us what's happening at, at, in these um, connections between Vietnam and China. There, there seems to be a rail link which is going to be upgraded, and it just so happens to run through the parts of Vietnam where incredibly precious and useful metals are buried. Yes, that's right. The the China's chief diplomat Wang Yi was in Vietnam visiting Hanoi on on Friday, and they're clearly uh, preparing the ground for a trip, a visit by the president Xi Jinping. Uh, and they obviously want some big news to announce when he's there. So it looks likely that some kind of rail link is in the offing. Um, you know, Vietnam and China are geographically neighbours. Um, you know, they're both single-party states with notionally communist parties in charge. So there are some similarities, but they're historically they're, they're, they haven't had the friendliest of relationships. And, and people in, in Vietnam are very wary of the Chinese. So connections between the countries aren't very strong. Um, so any announcement uh, of this kind would be uh, big news because I guess it would show um, how keen uh, China is to try and kind of curry favor with the Vietnamese and bring them closer to Beijing at a time when, um, you know, the US and the White House are really courting uh, Vietnam for the same reasons as, as they are, you know, India uh, to offset China. Um, how long do you think this will take to, to come about? Uh, I would say probably a long, long time. Um, in Vietnam, you know, China does in, invest there, you know, I must guess most famously the the first metro line in Vietnam in the capital Hanoi was built with Chinese money. Uh, and the second one in the southern uh, commercial capital of, of Ho Chi Minh City was built uh, by the Japanese. So the, the Chinese do have a history of of investing in Vietnam. But both of the line, those lines I've mentioned were very, very, very delayed. And they're just metro lines. So I imagine a big connection like this uh, will take a long time. And it is happening at the same time as China is funding, I guess, maybe a much bigger, much more important train line, high-speed train line from the same place, from Kunming, which is the capital of Yunnan province, right the way down to Singapore. 
So this one runs through Laos, it runs through Thailand, runs through Malaysia and end up in Singapore. So that's a huge endeavor. Um, so I imagine there's some interest as well uh, from the Vietnamese side in improving their trade uh, infrastructure trade links with China, uh, because I guess uh, they, they're in competition with places like Thailand for all of the business that is getting out of China. And there's not just competition uh, externally, but you've, you've written in uh, Monocle's forecast for 2024 about the fact that Vietnam is being a, is a very, very attractive location now for foreign investors. Yeah, we, I mean, the headlines this year have been full of this, I guess, China plus one strategy of, of uh, companies, international companies, moving a lot of their production out of China and looking for somewhere else, somewhere that's not the subject of US tariffs. Uh, and, you know, if you look around the region, Vietnam would be probably anyone's or most people's first choice, uh, including my own, if I were to uh, run an international business. It's got a lot of similarities um, with China in terms of infrastructure and, and, and I guess, uh, the approach of the workforce. Um, and it is very, very true. I've, you know, I've, I spent a bit of time in Ho Chi Minh City recently, uh, speaking to people on the ground, and there is an awful lot of activity going on. Um, you know, so you visit the Chamber of Commerce. I, I went to spoke, speak to the head of the French Chamber of Commerce, and he's, you know, he's had to um, expand his team just to field the amount of calls he's getting from from head office in in Paris for, for companies that are looking to move down from you know from the likes of Shanghai. So this this strategy is very real uh, and it is happening, and we're going to see a lot more companies moving to Vietnam in the next few years. Let's move uh, to a story which we mentioned in the headlines a few a few minutes ago, which is one of the most prominent prominent. Uh, protesters from uh, 2019, Agnes Chow, um, has found herself in Canada, uh, which is astonishing given the fact that she'd actually been imprisoned by the Chinese for her role in the protest. And she has, not to anyone's great surprise, said that she's going to stay there. Yes, that's right. It's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a sh- always a shame for Hong Kong. They've had a, a a very rare run of good news in the last few weeks. They've had, uh, you know, Pharrell Williams in town with his Louis Vuitton fashion show. And then they've had a big finance uh, conference and then the Clock and Flap Music Festival of the weekend. But it looks like uh, the next w- week or so is going to be full of uh, bad news again for the government, that is, uh, not for, for poor Agnes Chow, who, who has, uh, as you rightly said, she was jailed in 2020 for her actions during the 2019 protests. She was released in 2021, and she's still under investigation uh, for her for colluding with foreign forces. So she was meant to be reporting, for, uh, I guess, for, for her bail um, next month. And then on Sunday, yesterday, she made an announcement on her social media which is also her 27th birthday, to say she's in Canada, she's enrolled in the University of Toronto, and she has no plans to come back. Uh, so I guess now she's technically um, a fugitive. Uh, and um, you know, she, as you said, she was one of the main uh, people to come out of the 20, initial 2014 protests alongside Joshua Wong, who is a, a close friend of hers. Um, and it's very bizarre uh, that the Hong Kong authorities actually gave her her passport back and let her go to, to Canada. So I feel like there's a, there's a bit more to come out of this story. Um, the Hong Kong police have said that they're um, clearly not very pleased about this one. But there, is there any great surprise here? Because um, I think the, the element that most people are surprised are is that the fact that she actually had a passport which enabled her to flee. That's right. I'm very I'm shocked that she was given her passport back because as she, she said that in over the summer, the Hong Kong police forced her to go on a trip to mainland China. 
uh, to, I guess, you know, a bit of indoctrination or brainwashing. And they took her to some sites to show how, you know, how the Beijing government has transformed China since the 70s. She was even taken to the headquarters of Tencent, the owner of WeChat, to, I guess, see how technologically advanced China has become. I'm not sure how they thought that a quick trip around the mainland was going to, uh, you know, convince one of the, you know, the most diehard leaders of the protests to kind of, you know, mend her, her ways. But uh, that, that seems to have what they had in, had in mind. And when she came back to Hong Kong, she had to sign all kinds of things to say that she'd changed her mind. Um, and then, you know, they, they handed her passport back and let her go, travel to Canada. And surprise, surprise, she's not coming back. So um, either some heads are going to roll in the, in the Hong Kong police force, or actually they didn't want her to become basically a martyr uh, in, in Hong Kong to be another kind of Joshua Wong who just, uh, you know, languishes in prison and, uh, you know, uh, becomes uh, an attention, uh, a, a, a focus of attention for, for the international press because she was one of the, the leading figureheads. Um, she was on the cover of, you know, things like time so um potentially it was it was tactical i'm not sure that that would be a, a surprise as well but uh, i think as i said there's more to come on this james chambers thank you so much for joining us on the line you're listening to the globalist on monocle radio Now, many chefs long for the recognition of a Michelin star. Not too many give them up once they've got them. But Jörg Zupan is one of the few. His restaurant, Atelier, won the first Michelin star in Slovenia's capital, Ljubljana. And earlier this year, he closed the venue and handed back the award. But now he has a new venture on the same spot called After. It might not have a Michelin star yet, but it's bringing late-night dining to a city that's notoriously early to bed. Monocle's man in Ljubljana, Guy Delorny, stayed up late to check it out. Welcome to After, smack in the middle of Ljubljana's old town, next to one of the great hotels of the city, the Union. And last time I was here, it was quite different. It was called Atelier. It was the first Michelin-starred restaurant in the city. And it has to be said, it was a lot quieter my name is Jörg Zupan, um, head chef, owner of After, former atelier. There's enough uh, restaurants with the kind of concept that we had before, enough in general in, in the world and enough in, in Slovenia, enough in Ljubljana. You mean the tasting menus? So the tasting menus and the concept of the tasting menu is quite specific, I guess. We cook in the same way that we did before. We use the same techniques. We're trying to present the dishes in a different way. You know, it's not so theatrical as it was before because tasting menus, usually the experience that you want to get, I guess, is like a theater or a longer experience with things happening all the time. Here it's mostly about, you know, coming in, sitting down, ordering something to drink, something to eat with your friends, with your, or not, even like, you know, there's a communal table, you can meet new people, this is kind of the idea of the whole place. People getting together, knowing each other, being relaxed, having a good time. You know, no fuss. Good music, loud music. Yeah. The thing is, though, you had the first Michelin star in Ljubljana, and that's a big deal. So did it feel like a big deal to let it go? For me personally, not so much, because even before with Atelier, we didn't. Our main goal wasn't to achieve any accolades or, you know, awards or a, a red board on our doorstep or whatever. 
what we did, we did honestly and, and you know, with pride. And then the awards just came by themselves. I mean, it was interesting to say, to, to make the decision to, you know, take the step and like, give it back. And, and you know, how, how did the conversation with Michelin go? There was no real conversation. We just, you know, we just decided what we decided. We let them know in, a, in an email. You know, they don't really ring you up and say, well, why did you, you know? This place has been transformed from what was a fairly mellow dining room in very understated tones of, of wood, not particularly posh, but still fine dining nonetheless, into something which feels a bit more pre or even post-club. Quite an industrial look to this place, all shades of muted blue, and a rather banging sound system. I'm uh, Matthias Ivans. I'm co-owner. I'm your business partner. So whose idea was it to say goodbye to the first Michelin-starred restaurant in Ljubljana? It was a little bit shock. I was really, really very happy 2020 when we got this Michelin star because when you when you do this business fine dining then always goal is Michelin star and when York first told me what do you think can we uh, change the concept and yes first shock I slept two nights maybe a little bit not so good but <laughs> so how have you seen things change in, in the time that you've been partner with Jorg and running Atelier and Breg how have you seen the whole scene in Slovenia in general but in Ljubljana in particular in general, you know maybe one of the reason uh, that we that we left the Michelin or Atelier is also that not enough Slovenian people like this kind of food this kind of experience you know, because we worked very good in the season, you know, we can sell maybe three times a day atelier. The other months, you know, it's not enough people. So you still think Ljubljana isn't really ready for Michelin stars? Maybe yes, maybe no, but I cannot uh, thinking about uh, that anymore. <laughs> Sounds like you're relieved. Yes. <laughs> So, this is very much an adventure for the moment. It seems that neither York nor his partner are quite clear on what after can be, and they're on an exciting journey to find out where things are going to take them. Why not get along for the ride? For Monocle in Ljubljana, I'm Guy Delaunay. Odaloni clearly having a dreadful time there in Ljubljana. And that's all we have time for today's programme. Many thanks to all my guests and to the producers, Christy O'Grady, CeCe Armstrong and Emma Sell. Our studio manager was Tamsin Howard. After the headlines, there is more music on the way. The briefing's live at midday here in London and The Globalist is back at the same time tomorrow. I hope you can join me for that if you can. But for now, from me, Emma Nelson, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening and have a great week. 